I didn't even know about raising money. I was just following my passion. I didn't know what a VC was, what that meant. And I just knew that this was something I wanted to try. And I knew that I had already failed at a business and what went wrong. I learned so many lessons from that failure. So when I started Providence, I knew exactly what I didn't want. This whole kind of build it and they will come was my was my philosophy when I started Get Fresh. With Providence, it was like, no, I'm going to be so strict and so careful about how I spend every dollar. And I'm not going to just go on hope. I'm going to go on what is my bottom line telling me? What are the unit economics? How much do I need to charge to make sure that this is a viable business? So it was yes. a really different approach. This is Get Shit Done, a podcast that dives into how women entrepreneurs are gaining traction and growing companies that scale generational impact. Each episode is real talk from women founders who have successfully scaled companies. You'll learn what they did to grow, how they did it, and the tools they used to get it done so you can too. To get access to more episodes of Get Shit Done, along with free traction tools, head on over to shegetshitdone.com. Welcome back to the Get Shit Done podcast, queens and comrades. I'm your host, Alex Batdorf, aka Chief Get Shit Done Officer. Did you know that women own nearly half of businesses in the U.S., but we only generate 4% of total revenues? Mm-mm, not no more. That's why our motto is fuck 4%. Our goal here every week is to teach you the traction strategies, tactics, and give you the tools you need to get shit done and grow your company on your own terms so you can scale generational impact. Today, we'll be breaking down how my girl Carol Lee, founder of Provenance Meals, was able to scale a multi-million dollar meal prep company, which is one of the hardest and capital-intensive markets. And she only raised 200000 through crowdfunding just a couple of years ago after being in business for nearly a decade. Providence Meals is one of the OGs in the meal prep industry when many have come and gone, but they're not your ordinary meal prep service. They craft clean and beautiful meals based on what wellness looks like to you and for your body, and they match their customers with health coaches. So here's what you're going to learn from Carol today. How the failure of her first company made her diligent about getting the unit economics and pricing right so she could successfully scale Providence Meals today. And how the heck they were able to scale a capital-intensive company without capital in the first eight years through partnerships, and this includes partnerships with influencers and celebrities, and she's going to lay out how you can do it too. You'll also get access to her go-to-market strategy and how it's evolved today, as well as why she didn't raise capital and what she thinks about it today for her business. What's really unique about Carol's story in juxtaposition to Betsy Ford from Tiny Organics, it is such a great example of how you can go two different paths and be successful, but how the right path is based on what impact looks like to you. And finally, you'll learn the one thing Carol is focused on remedying today that she thinks would have gotten her further and faster and how you can prevent this mistake. But before we get started, we need support from our tribe. Yes, that's you. To help our team show up and support you week after week to help you on your scaling journey. If you haven't yet, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast if you already done it, thank you so much. Now, please share it with a friend who could gain value from listening in every week into basically masterclasses that you couldn't get anywhere else and photo free. You know what I'm saying? Share the love. And if you want to get our weekly Get Shit Done traction briefings, this is where we break down all the episodes with the key takeaways, free resources, templates, tools. These are things you will not get in the episode. Head on over to shegetshitdone.com slash join so we can slide up in your inbox to help you get shit done weekly. And without further ado, Queen Carolee. 
Carol, welcome to Get Shit Done. Thank you. It's so good to be here, Alex. I'm so happy she's here. And also, you can't see her right now unless we release this clip. But she moved from New York to LA and her setup is just like giving me villa vibes. And I'm in my feelings because it's cold in New York still because it hasn't realized it's spring. (laughs) (laughs) It's an endless summer here in Southern California. And I'm not mad about it. I love it. I know it's not for me, but I like visiting friends. And I love just seeing how like, I don't know, glow glowing they are. That's all, always nice. But we're here to talk about her incredible company, Provenance Meals. And you all, if you're a OG, get shit done, comrade or queen, you heard our other friend, Betsy Four on here. And when I met Carol, I was like, oh my goodness, you you both need to know each other. And And amazingly, you both grew differently. And so I'm excited to see the other side of this because you are in a historically hard market and you are one of the OGs. But before we dive into all of that, I want to take it back a little bit so the audience understands a little bit about Carol. What were you all about and what were you doing before you started this this company to give us a little context for how you got here? Sure. I actually started Provenance when I was 40 years old. So there's a lot of years <laughs> prior to Provenance. Which is I, amazing because it's proven that entrepreneurs that are in their 40s and up are the most successful. Yeah. I think by that point, you have a lot of confidence in who you are and what you want to do. So I think that honestly, that quote unquote late start did actually help me kind of just establish the company the way I wanted it to be established from the get go. But going back to before Providence Meals. I moved to, I went to college. I moved to San Francisco post-college and I got there in 1995, which was basically the beginning of the dot-com boom. So I was just in a really exciting environment where technology was making everything possible, launch parties every weekend. And I fell into a lot of, well, launches basically, launching a lot of different websites, working for design and branding agencies that were bringing e-commerce to the fore for the first time, being able to purchase online. So I got my chops in San Francisco and tech and branding and e-commerce then. And I ended up in-house at Gucci Group in New York City. They Gucci Group has Bottega Veneta, Balenciaga, Stella McCartney, Yves Saint Laurent, like just this family of amazing luxury brands. And similarly to the, my work in San Francisco, all of those brands were going online to sell for the very first time. So I was part of the in-house team that was launching all of these e-commerce websites. But ultimately, I, well, I had a child in that time and also realized that as much as it was so fun working at Gucci Group, the sample sales were outrageous. (laughs) It was an amazing team that I was with. I just didn't have the passion to be selling expensive Italian handbags online at the end of the day. I cared about food. I'm just always been one of those people that's always thinking about their next meal, like reading all the restaurant reviews, pouring over cookbooks. I just, I'm obsessed with food. I love good food. It brings me so much joy and so much pleasure in my life. So at the same time, I was reading Michael Pollan's book, The Omnivore's Dilemma, and I was learning a lot about our food system, how corn and soy are these monocultures destroying the soil of America, how all of this subsidized corn and soy and making its way into processed foods and how animals are raised on you know factory farms just really disgusting operations and i just as someone who loves food so much and then to be having my eyes opened about how the food in this country is grown and raised it really motivated motivated me to do something about it so i ended up launch opening a little market in brooklyn park slope brooklyn This was back in 2006. So organic, gluten-free, local, sustainable, those are all just sort of on the rise at that time, but it was still very early on. And I was making little meal kits, little like single prepared meals that had basically really high quality ingredients that I sourced from farmer's markets or trusted farmer vendors, grass-fed meats, pasture-raised chicken, and putting it into a container that Basically, the, the area in Brooklyn was Park Slope. It was a lot of busy working professional parents. So people, those busy parents could just grab meals, go home, maybe do a few more things in the kitchen, and dinner would be served. We also sourced a lot of like artisanal brands that were on the rise in Brooklyn at the time, like 
San Luis ice cream and hot bread kitchen tortillas and just like all these Siggy's yogurt, all these really established name brands now that were really just getting their start in New York at that time. And so that's that's the path that led me from e-commerce and luxury branding, technology, and then food and sustainability, the end result being Providence Meals. I love this and I love giving context because when you see an accumulation of people's experiences before they launch a business, it I think reveals a lot about why they're good at certain things because they have a very unique experience. Like the fact that you were in luxury, which I love. I did like in college, I did my thesis on the luxury fashion industry and the impact on society was this whole thing. But also the fact that you had this food component and you studied. So what I really loved about our our first discussion when we walked through your business um, is that you had opened a restaurant, you had found the chef, and then you were looking at doing meals, and then you decided to to leave that. It was just too much. You you had mentioned that there wasn't enough balance. So, you know, from then when you a tell us a little bit about that experience, but then b what gave you that aha to be like, oh my goodness, we're gonna do provenance mills. Sure. So yes, like I mentioned, I launched this little marketplace and I had, as you can tell from the story I just told, I had no experience running a food business whatsoever. It was a completely different kind of work environment than I had been used to. And it was hard. It was really, really hard. I I joke that that's where I got my MBA by, by just doing, right? By doing work, learning about costs of goods sold and unit economics and all the things like how to get people in the door. And then I had a young child and I was pregnant with a second and I was stressed. So what I ended up doing, I, I was really stressed. I was like, I don't know how to get out of this. Maybe I've made a terrible mistake. I really believed in the mission of what I was trying to accomplish, but the numbers were not adding up to be <laughs> anything near what I needed them to be to call this business a success in any way, shape or form. So I, it was a beautiful space. My husband actually had quit his office job and become a contractor right around the same time and ended up building out this gorgeous market space for me. Just a note for your listeners, like not, I don't recommend both wage earners going into business. (laughs) At the same time, it was really stressful, but I knew that this space was amazing. My husband had done an incredible job and we ended up thinking this could be a perfect place for a cafe. So we sort of pivoted the business model to be market and table is what we called it. Get fresh market and table. And I brought in chefs to run the cafe and people to work the coffee station. And that was, again, another huge learning opportunity for me. Ultimately, I knew I didn't want to be a restaurant owner, though. So what I did was I actively sought out a chef who wanted to open his own place. It was his dream to always open his own restaurant. I found a chef in the neighborhood, and I basically sold him half of the business for very little. And after about a year of running the restaurant, I was able to sell my my 50% to him so that he owned it in its entirety, and I was able to exit right at the same time I had my second child. So... That's what, that was a real low for me, honestly. I had taken a huge risk. I did not think of it as a success in any way, shape, or form. And I felt really sort of like lost as to what I should do next. When I thought about it, I knew that, again, that mission of food and especially healthy food that is sourced well was still really important to me. I had two kids at this point and what I was feeding them was still really important to me. How I fed myself while I was pregnant was so important to me. I knew that food was this foundational um, element to just forming the elbows and toes and (laughs) noses that I was growing in my body as well as supporting my own body and cellular structure and my health really at the end of the day, how I looked, how I felt, how I operated. So I went to school for nutrition. I went to the Institute for Integrative um, Nutrition it was a, a program that I was able to do sort of on my own time and raise two young kids at the same time. That program was a year. When I finished that program, I began health coaching immediately. So I started working 
with a lot of, I started working with friends first. I just offered my friends like, hey, do you want a free consultation with me? We'll talk about your nutrition and your health and we'll look at what you're doing for yourself and your wellness right now. And that business became my next venture. I started working with a lot of women in the neighborhood who were similar to me. They were busy. They were working. They had one, two, maybe more kids. And the same kind of tricks that they had used in the past to maintain their 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 health weren't working. Like they had the extra weight or they were tired and they just, they didn't know what to do anymore. So I started working with a lot of women that were, that were like me. And then from that, I was giving them the advice, eat this food, you know, avoid these things. These are inflammatory tricks. Putting a lot of people on a food program where they would eliminate gluten, dairy, sugar from their diet, corn and soy for seven days, maybe meat. And I was really amazed at the results. And so were the women that I, were, I was working with. They felt incredible after just, you know, maybe five or seven days of eating clean food. Um, and that started to be what everybody wanted from me. Like, in addition to the consultations, they were like, can you just bring me the food? Can you just get me the food? I don't have the time to shop and meal plan, et cetera. Can we just have this element of the business? And that's, that was the birth of Providence. That was in 2012. By 2013, I'd formed an LLC and it was really clear to me that that was the direction that I was supposed to go, that that's where the demand was anyway. I really struggled with this idea of going back into the food business. I had left it behind. I was still sort of traumatized from my restaurant experience. And, um, but as these requests kept coming in, I was like, okay, this is, the universe is calling me. <laughs> it wants me to give food to people, feed people healthy food. And it's just something that brings me a lot of joy is it brings myself joy with the eating good food. And it, I get a lot of joy and pleasure out of seeing people enjoy food that I've prepared as well. So, so that's yeah. really, really, that's the point at which I launched Providence and the rest is somewhat history. <laughs> I love that. And what's interesting from what, you know, you're talking about, because there's so many different types of meal prep services. And I don't feel like they get as granular to what you're doing on from a health perspective. So what do you feel out of all the choices? What do you feel that what problem do you solve best that you feel none of none of the other players are solving for? Yeah. Well, it's, it's founded on the belief that food is medicine. I think we live in a society that's sick in many ways, and food is gentle, safe, effective, preventative medicine. So it's a huge problem that I'm trying to solve. I'm trying to reduce the amount of lifestyle disease that is running rampant in this country. It's a long road. It's not something that you can say, eat this and you'll prevent cancer, eat this and you won't get heart disease. But I mean, and to make it even more personal, my, my mom passed away from brain cancer when I was 33, right before a year later, my father-in-law had a heart attack and passed away. And that was the same time that I became pregnant with my first child. And I really think that that confluence of events over the two years made me not only see, but really experience in my body what a life well-lived with good food could be potentially, and what one that maybe wasn't as healthy could result in and the suffering and the trauma and the grief. My mom was an immigrant from South Korea and her sisters, South Korean women have some of the longest life expectancies in the world. And her sisters too are still alive and thriving in their late eighties in Korea. And then another has passed away. I think she was 93 when she passed away. Like I just feel really robbed in many ways of the years with my mom. And I really, she moved to the States. She had a more Western diet. She loved bagels. She was eating a lot of foods that I don't know if genetically were great for her, but regardless of her heritage, you know, we, we know that much of food in America is not healthy for us. No. It's refined, it's processed, it's high in sugar. It definitely affects your health on a daily basis in the short term mm. and the long term. So the problem I'm trying to solve, again, it's huge. I'm really trying to just improve the health of individuals in this country. And I'm trying to do it through education and also just by putting the food in their mouths. And that's why it has to be so delicious. Like that's another huge goal of mine with Providence is it has to taste good. I think healthy food gets such a bad rap as being bland 
or being, you know, a lot of salads. And that's not my goal with Providence because initially that that spark was the joy, right? The joy from eating. So if you're not getting that from your food, what's the point? You're not going right. to be healthy anyway if you don't have like that, those sources of pleasure in your life. So to me, it's all about healthy food that also tastes amazing and is so craveable. That's that's really the goal and mission of Provenance. I love this because this is something I'm dealing with now. I've had acid reflux for God knows how long. And I had to go through this whole journey of understanding and still today, what are the triggers? And thank you so much for sharing your own family experience because I think this also, I don't even like to use the word competitors. I just say other players because mm -hmm. what makes Founders Vision so special is so unique to our experience. Other player can come in the market and wouldn't be able to execute at the level you do because they don't have that that gut-wrenching experience that you had and that passion that fuels it. You can throw as much money at it, but you still, you can't replace it with passion. So what I find fascinating too is that you have now been doing this company for a decade. This space is historically, I've seen, I remember when I was living in Chicago, there was this meal prep service called Sprig and it literally collapsed within maybe a year. It's just so capital intensive. You've not only been able to scale this in a decade. You've been five years profitable since you moved from LA or from New York to LA. You were able to grow your month over month revenues from 83%. And you literally only raised 200,000 for this business. This reminds me of Sita Lash, founder of the Puff Cup. Similar. She's been doing this almost a decade and they raised well, well, well under a million for the type of company that is capital intensive. So Tell us first, where did you get this capital? And then how in the heck have you been able to grow this company, a capital intensive, traditionally capital intensive type of business with such little means? I, I wish that I had some like amazing answer that showcased how intelligent I am. But honestly, I didn't even know about raising money. I was just following my passion. I didn't know what a VC was, what that meant. And I just knew that this was something I wanted to try. And I knew that I had already failed at a business and what went wrong. I learned so many lessons from that failure. So when I started Providence, I knew exactly what I didn't want. I knew that I did not want a brick and mortar location. I didn't want food waste. I hated making food and sending it out on these pretty grocery shelves and then having to, you know, get rid of it or donate it, you know, at the end of a couple of days because it, it wasn't purchased. This whole kind of build it and they will come was my, was my philosophy when I started Get Fresh. With Providence, it was like, no, I'm going to be so strict and so careful about how I spend every dollar. And I'm not going to just go on hope. I'm going to go on what is my bottom line telling me? What are the unit economics? How much do I need to charge to make sure that this is a viable business? So it was yes. a really different approach. You know, I had the passion was still there and that was there in the first business. But at the end of the day, you need to know exactly where every penny and dollar is going in those early days or you're not going to. Now, like you mentioned, Betsy Ford from Tiny Organics. I love her story because she knew, same, she knew what she wanted from her. It was maybe her second or third company, Tiny Organics, like. She knew she didn't want to go it alone. She knew she wanted to be able to raise money. She, profitability was not her goal so much as getting the food into as many, you know, babies' mouths that need it. Income level, you know, be damned. I, I think I approached it from a different place, which was has to be profitable from the beginning. And I would love to make it more accessible, but I know that this is a premium product. So I'm going to have to reach out to a certain audience for it. I had some capital from my health coaching business and I did not, I had started with like $4,500. I remember thinking, okay, I've got this $4,500 kind of saved up and set aside. What can I do with it? How will I spend it? And then what will I do next? And I, again, just that focus on, is this profitable and checking in all the time, very slow growth, honestly, right? With capital, you can grow much faster with $4,500. You can only take it sort of a week at a time one customer at a time and build, you know, looking back, was that the best way? I don't know. But by the time I had some bigger outline goals of what I wanted to do with the company, as opposed to just kind of moving along with this organic growth, 
I did go and start talking to other founders and talking about what a VC is, what an angel is, you know, what, what's a reasonable amount of capital to raise for what I want to do. What I wanted to do was launch in Los Angeles. I, I always knew that Los Angeles was another marketplace that very similar to New York. There were going to be a lot of people who were in my target audience there who cared about wellness, who were busy professionals, who needed good food in their lives. And I knew I couldn't do that with just, you know, go out there and do this slowly, you know, one customer at a time approach that I had done in New York. So at that point, I did a crowdfunding equity raise, which is a little bit different from regular crowdfunding like Kickstarter. You're actually raising for shares in your company on the assumption that there's going to be another round of raising later. And I don't, I don't come from a lot of like a, a wealthy, you know, gen, tons of generational wealth. I didn't have the friends and family that I could ask for 50,000, 100,000 here, there to help. So I went to the crowdfunding route and I, and I went to my clients because we already had this base of clients who really loved us and trusted us for years in New York. And I put together a campaign via Republic and was able to raise almost 200,000 there. And that money has helped mm. fund our launch in LA. And literally you didn't raise until years into the business, which I think is Fantastic. And what's so, what I love about the juxtaposition between what you and Betsy have both been able to accomplish is you've done both paths. And I, and that's a huge thing of what we try to highlight on this podcast. It's that no path is wrong unless it's the path that's not in alignment with your vision of impact. That's the only wrong decision is like when you just start doing it because everybody else is like my favorite thing that I've noticed of any founder we've interviewed that has successfully scaled is that they have a very logical, whether it took failures in previous companies, very logical understanding of why they chose profitability over raising for equity and vice versa. I think that's the most important. I think I listen to so many founders that are early stage and they're not able to articulate it in the way of the founders who have successfully scaled is saying, this is why we did not do that. So what's fascinating to me as well between you and Betsy is I don't know what this thing is about Park Slope, but you both did your testing <laughs> in Park Slope, New York. Yes, I, I know. Isn't that a funny coincidence? So crazy. <laughs> um, and, but you both have, I mean, she babies and you're with a certain clientele. Um, what allowed you, I know you were doing these meal kits and you were doing your, your coaching service at the time. But what got you to hone in or decide who your hell yes customers would be? Because I think, you know, you talked about from the previous company, you learned that, A, we are going to understand the unit economics. We're going to understand pricing. So from that, like, decision matrix, how did you say, here's who we're targeting and what was the response from them? Yeah. Well, for, initially it was me solving my own problem. I think I'm sure you hear that all the time from founders. I saw that there was this hole in the market for high quality, like well-sourced food that's easy to access, easy to you know, eat essentially because it's already cooked for you, right? And so for me, I created something that I knew I would use and that my friends would use. But because of the unit economics, I did have to price it at a higher price point than than maybe a lot of my friends could afford at that time as young, young parents. We got, we got, well, I, don't know, I was going to say we were really lucky, but I was going to say maybe it's not even luck. We, I networked with other health coaches and that I had graduated IIN with, and I went out to doctor's offices, functional medicine practitioners. At that time, functional medicine was still, well, it was a lot of private clinics. It wasn't something that you could maybe use your health insurance to see that get that kind of care that kind of testing that's going to look for the root of the problem of whatever symptoms or illness you were going through you know it wasn't it was very different model than conventional western medicine where you're prescribed a pill for your symptoms this was always going to the root and i knew that that food is medicine approach was very important in functional medicine too so i started working to get provenance as a recommendation through these functional medical practice practices. And that kind of defined my client base. It was often the people who cared enough about their own health to invest in it beyond 
kind of the standard level of care in the U.S. at the time, and still, honestly. So finding the audience of people who were already willing to pay for acupuncture or to go to see a functional med medical doctor and pay extra for like various tests that you can get. I knew those people were committed to their health and that Providence Meals could be another tool in their toolkit to be well, to truly be well. So that was, that was, I think the defining moment for me is that's the customers that were coming into me. Those were the ones that I was having a conversation with that worked well with the current health coaching, like the health coaching I continued for, for several years before I finally kind of stopped doing that myself, but it's still a part of Providence Meals the service. I hire health coaches so that people can still get that personalized attention to the bigger picture of what they're trying, what problem they're trying to solve with again, food being like that one tool in the toolkit that they can do every single day and enjoy and it's moving them towards their wellness goals. Which I love in terms of being at a premium price point. You're saying, you know, and I love that you you referenced Betsy and saying we want to get into as many homes as possible because of what they're trying to solve for. And you're saying, well, we're actually going to we're going to start here, and this allows us to scale it across these groups of people. So I love that approach, and I also love the fact that. You have a branding design, especially in luxury. I, I am not a trained marketer, but I think because I studied the luxury industry for years in undergrad to understand the impact and the flip it was having in terms of mass consumerism. If you want to learn good marketing, watch luxury companies. Because it's literally just a feeling. They're not going after price. Some of that stuff you don't even need. <laughs> you don't need, but it feels- Oh, for sure. <laughs> oh, good. It's like, do I need a crocodile purse? Probably not. Um, but it made me feel really good. And honestly, I, I think that is the, the core of marketing you're making. I mean, what Simon Sinek says is like, start with why. It's like, they do that so well. Apple does that very well. Apple doesn't even have most of the market, but they literally are the most valuable company the world has ever seen. And so what was your go-to-market strategy? Once you had defined, this is our core target audience, what was your go-to-market? You mentioned that you went to these, these different health clinics and practitioners. Was there anything else you did in order to spread the word and acquire more customers? And how has that evolved mm -hmm. today? I think a lot of the emphasis early on was on education because people weren't making that connection between what they're eating every day and their health. It seems sort of obvious to nowadays, I think, and you, you have so many products on the market that are all about their health claims. But I think initially it really was that education piece. So putting out a lot of content about why this matters, why this is important. But, but going into a new market and now with the market being kind of inundated with all of this wellness, right? All these wellness services, all these wellness products. It's it's more challenging in a way. It's it's also good because it's a bigger market. There are a lot of people who understand what we're trying to do and they completely get it from the beginning. So let's let's focus maybe on that education piece. But standing out in a crowded marketplace is harder now. So I can tell you what we've done in LA to launch here. We launched in May of last year. So it's been almost a year now. First we created buzz, you know, we created desire. So we, we put it on our website, we're coming to LA, you know, get on the wait list so that we started to build a, an email list for people that would, that already wanted us to be there. We already had a lot of requests coming from the West Coast already. So that part was great. Then we started during COVID, we actually pivoted to having a nationally shipped product called the Feel Good Fix. It's a three-day plant-based cleanse program. So you get everything you need for three days to sort of a quick reset. And it's, it's not, it was not originally part of my game plan to try and become a national brand. Shipping uh, perishables across the country, depending on FedEx to do so, is like not a good business model. It's, or it's, exp it's expensive business model, I should say. And I really care about the quality of the food, obviously. So putting it into the hands of FedEx could be sort of, I lost control at that point, right? But, but we did it because of COVID, because a lot of people left New York, a lot of people were just home all the time, and we knew that there were people in the rest of the country that needed this reset that could help improve their health and their immunity during a pretty scary 
health crisis. So we were able to launch the Feel Good Fix in LA first. Before even physically being there, we were able to get our products into the hands of people, um, including some influencers. We did a lot of events when we got here. So partners have been key working with other wellness um, practitioners, the doctors, the nutritionists, but also fitness, beauty partners, lifestyle. Again, there's there's so much in the world of wellness now that there's been no shortage of people to partner with and let them know we're here. So yeah, that's I would say that's been our go-to-market strategy. I think in New York, it really was, again, it was just, I didn't have a plan so much as uh, growth was happening and I was trying to keep up with it. Now that sort of switched to like, how can I grow? How can I achieve my goals now of really increasing the access to Providence Meals and helping more and more people make that connection between what they're putting in their bodies three times a day and feeling really good. And I, I like that you mentioned the luxury part too, because yeah. that that element, I think it's not only, it is something that makes you feel so good, the luxury products and Apple products, but Apple's a great example. It also works really well, right? Like everything works together. And I think that's what, with Providence, not only is it delicious, but it's beautiful. Like you eat with your eyes first. It's really creative, refined cuisine. Um, and I think that the experience of seeing something beautiful enjoying the flavor and then feeling the effects in your body is is what makes it sort of a luxury a luxury product you know it's really yeah. kind of a 360 approach to feeling well it really is and i love it you said you eat with your eyes which is why they always tell you don't go to the grocery store on an empty stomach <laughs> because you're like that looks so delicious because the packaging is you know so amazing i love that you're pointing out your go to market was a lot around partnerships because whether you're funded or not, but especially when you lack funding, there is so much power in partnership in spreading awareness. And you've done such a good job. Like you have celebrity clients like Gina Rodriguez. Like there's what the, what's that one movie I just saw on Netflix about like this, I don't know, it's about people in their twenties that were in love or fell out of love or broke up. And I'm just like, yes, when I saw that, but I, now I'm listening to you talk about what helped you all, you all kind of establish yourself. What advice would you have for founders who are trying to A, build partnerships, but B, do it in the influencer celebrity space because everybody mm. wants that plug. It builds awareness really fast. What do you think you did well to secure those partnerships? Yeah. I, again, like a little bit, a little bit of luck, a little bit of timing. I think that even still, even though it is a crowded marketplace, there's just not that many products that are, I want to say have the integrity that we do. Like I, one thing I have done is stayed so true to the mission from the beginning, because it's just what I care about. Like I can't, I can't, my, my kids hate it, but I can't buy these snacks <laughs> that are made with, you know, that are gluten-free and they're dairy-free and they're made with cauliflower, but they have canola oil or sunflower oil as their base, you know, or when the first ingredient you see on some fruit product is sugar, right? Like I just, it's been expensive. It's been so expensive to make a product that doesn't use cheap oils or take any shortcuts at all. I always want to make sure that that label when, that you read on a provenance product is like you recognize every single ingredient and it's all organic and it all came from a good place. And most likely we know who the actual producer or purveyor of that ingredient is. So, so celebrities, yeah, they want the best. They, they can afford the best. And there's a lot of noise out there and there's a lot of people who want to get in front of them. I know it's probably not the most helpful advice for other founders out there, but just have a really high quality, good product that stands out in some way. You know, focus on what differentiates you, makes it desirable. Because I think, I think when you're at that level of clients where you're working, you know, we're, we're working with Naomi Watts and Rachel Brosnahan, their, their job is to look and feel amazing and to have the energy for these long shoots and uh, to look fabulous while they're doing it. And the reason they eat with us is because it works. So 
I mean, we have PR firms. We I've leaned into my connections. You know, we're all six degrees of separation away from some some celebrity, probably. So that's probably good advice too. Is just start asking people, start talking to people, and see see who can maybe get your product in front of this person or that person. But ultimately, like it just has to be worth their time and energy, which is limited. So it just has to be really good. That's that's what I focused on at least. There might yeah. be other easier, faster ways to get there than no, the approach I've taken for sure. You know, it's like we just did an interview with Sita Lash from Puff Cup. That's why she's top of mind right now. But, you know, she talked about fast money is not good money. And I don't think anything fast is good. <laughs> like too fast is good. It usually doesn't have a good payoff. And I think it's the same thing with product is like marketing – is what attracts people product is what keeps them. And so I see this with unit economics of these big, big companies spending a crap ton of money on marketing, but their product really is trash or it doesn't have a good retention model. They just attracted a lot of people because they were able to saturate the market. Like I'm thinking of, you know, Casper mattresses when they had to reveal what their numbers were, it was like they were spending an exorbitant amount on attracting people, but they weren't keeping them. Have I tried it? I don't know what the product's like. Maybe it's something else. But I think that's such a testament is getting the product down. Yes, you need marketing, but a good business model is based off of retention. So what's what's also fascinating is you mentioned the partnerships with practitioners, non-celebrities, which I think that is just as important. What is your process for for that? Because partnership in general, like it, there's power in numbers, right? So when you're establishing partnerships to hit goals, what is your thought process through that? What would you advise other founders when they want to do a successful partnership? We really look to first make sure that our audience is the same. So we're not wasting anybody's time, right? It's Again, the world of wellness is so big and we're so focused on one element of it, which is diet. And I think that's so important, especially in the diet culture that we live in, people eat for the wrong reasons sometimes. So we're trying to provide something that is, you know, that basically says fuck diet culture and calorie counting. Like that's not, those are not the numbers you should be measuring. You should be counting, you know, the number of colors on your plate or the number of steps you're taking. You shouldn't be counting calories. Like Oreo calorie is different from an apple calorie. Absolutely. Yeah. So working with, with people who have the same philosophy as us, who are reaching the same people who are looking for the same thing. That's probably the first thing that I look for in a partner. Just really, yeah, seeing eye to eye on what we're doing. And then because we work in the space of food, but we're the problem we're trying to solve is so much bigger. There's just a lot of people who have the same goal, but are doing it with different products or educating about different topics. Food is great because it fits into hormone health, uh, preventing diabetes and metabolic disease, or works with fitness and your fitness goals. So it's just, again, so foundational that it's easy for us uh, as a food company to go to a wide variety of partners and say, this is how we help your clients. So I think I think those are probably the top two things that I, I look at. Like, how do they fit in with us so that we're not offering the same thing to the client, but we have, we're solving the same problem? And are we talking to the same people? Yeah, I love that. Shared values and then also complementary. So it's like everyone's winning together, which I think is amazing. Speaking of of marketing, and I think partnerships are such a powerful way to grow organically. And you have, I mean, you're now a seven-figure business and in a space that is incredibly hard, but you haven't invested any money in marketing in a decade. Which I think, <laughs> well, I wouldn't say no money, but yeah, marketing, I'm not a marketer. So, yeah. as, you know, from my background, I was more about like managing the projects to bring e-commerce uh, projects to life and not then with luxury branding, I didn't need to, right? Like these were, right. it was Gucci group. They were already very established. They had all the money. People <laughs> desire. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So that really wasn't my emphasis. And yeah. or my area of expertise. So I never did bring that into my company. We got some really good press early on. And again, I just, I, I hate to keep, you know, saying the same thing, but because 
what we do, a lot of companies don't. We were not alone, but they're not, even to this day, there's still not a lot of companies that do what we do in the terms of focusing on health while still being like really beautiful and a, a little bit, it's not quite fine dining, but that's, that's the place we're coming from. We're like yeah. a really nice restaurant meal and the experience of it, the sensations of it, minus obviously like the lovely service part because we can't come into your homes and feed you. Yeah. But beyond that, we're trying to capture that feeling of like a really elevated experience with a meal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of meal delivery companies are they're competing with each other on price. $9.99 a meal, $7.99. Yep. You know, it's just we're not trying to. But I did hire a marketing director full time in 2018. Again, not my area of expertise. I knew as a company, so obviously, you needed marketing. Yeah, six years in. Hired a marketing person full-time, and we just started a second marketing coordinator a couple years ago. And they're a small but mighty team, and they're the ones that are getting out there and making all these partnerships and events happen, especially in L.A., and it's been really exciting to watch. We're doing all of the normal things that I don't know, maybe you, I feel like as a business, you have to, right? You have to do mm. the paid social and the advertising. We do direct mail, we do PR. We're doing all of it now. But for a long time, we were able to get away without it because the strength of the product, the, the you know, the emptiness of the marketplace, mm. not so crowded back then, and really good, good press. Having this, some of the celebrity clients early on, as you mentioned, great for brand awareness. So... When we do partnerships, we can offer food. People, yep. I mean, I want to get my food into as many mouths as possible because that's what really sells it. Yep. Once you taste it and it's good for you, it's kind of a no-brainer. <laughs> so yeah. to being able to do that with some key influencers early on really helped. So the the cool thing here is like so much of what you're saying is more on the earned marketing. And then six years in, you got on a, a marketing director. And then a few years later, you brought on a coordinator but still, it's like the investment in paid stuff wasn't until later. And I think that's so important because out the gate, when I see these very early stage companies trying to invest, mark I love marketing. I love marketing. Um, I don't think when you're an early stage company, when you're still learning about your customer, it is that effective when you're paying for all of these ads. I think the approach of partnerships, guerrilla marketing, getting out there talking, like boots, the, really boots to the ground is the most powerful thing you can do because when you do start investing in the paid channels, whether it's paying for events, paying for, you know, giving them a free meal, it amplifies all the work you've already done. And it yeah. it is a great way to balance not only acquisition, but retention. They're working hand in hand versus when you're just marketing, you have acquisition, but you don't have retention, which is is really problematic. Right. So I'm so happy you, you broke down those different channels that you all are ex- experimenting with and have worked for you today. And speaking of not investing in, in certain things, you know, it took you a while to even consider investing in the marketing side of things once you got the company to a certain place, but you also haven't really raised capital for this company. It's been around like what, in a decade, 200,000? Yeah, yeah, that's it. <laughs> Which is, again, with a capital intensive, uh, you remind me so much of Cita Lash, where same for her, she did not, you know, raise. And you, when you and I spoke in- initially, you said that a lot of founders told you not to. And yeah. you've been weighing the pros and cons of it. So I would love to to hear or, or you to explain a little bit about your experience even considering fundraising and what you think are pros and cons and do you think you'll ever raise? Yeah, it's a good question. Like I mentioned, I just didn't even know in the beginning. So again, not some, you know, wonderful insight about how I'm going to hold on to ownership of my company so much as I just, I wasn't aware. And, you know, going back to what we're saying about marketing, when you are starting a company and you have um, kind of proven your market strategy, you've got a viable product and you get investment and then you spend a lot on marketing so that you can speed up the growth of the company really quickly. Like that to me seems like a really good path. By the time I got around to really understanding <laughs> raising, I was kind of, I was past that point, right? I had already, I've already got the profitability. I've already got the proof of concept. I'm already in the marketplace. So it wasn't, there's never been urgency for me to raise because of those achieving kind of those milestones already. Obviously, the 
I'm not, I would never say never, but what I did hear from founders was it's a really different kind of pressure that once you raise, you started a clock and now you're on this clock where you need to hit certain sales goals and certain sales targets in an amount of time that increases the stress, you know, a hundredfold. I want to hit those goals. I don't know that I want that additional pressure of a clock ticking behind me. And I like owning my company. I I know there's plenty of founders who, who don't really at this point own much of their company anymore. And that's okay, right? That's, they have different, they have a different path. They have different goals perhaps than me. But that, the idea of not owning this company that I've now worked on for over a decade, see, I don't, I don't think I like that. I don't think I like the idea of not having control over where this company goes. I guess I would be, it, I mentioned that staying true to my mission and being coming to this company with a lot of integrity and, and maintaining that integrity is so important. And I, I think I worry a little bit that there might I might be forced to make some decisions or that decisions would be taken away from me that would would compromise that integrity slightly. Cause I know it is capital intensive. It's a, it's very expensive expensive to make perishable food and try and send it across the country also it seems very time consuming from what i understand from other founders to like once you decide to raise like i love working on my company you know i love working with my team i have this amazing team i just don't want to stop doing that so that i then focus all my energy on raising and wooing investors but like i said i never say never i'd love to get my company to a point where the success is there and I'm ready to take it to another level. And I recognize that I need help doing that. And then, and then it's not me so much going out and wooing investors. It's just meeting the right people that would be a right fit for the company and what the yeah. goals are, like sh- the shared values and the shared goals. And honestly, I have regrets too about not raising. I think that I've been so like doing it alone, really. No co-founder, no investors. You know, I don't have a close-knit board of advisors that's guiding me with every major decision. And I know that good investors can really be like a family and they can make really important connections. And, you know, I don't have access to that right now. So lots of pros and cons, always mulling it over. But I do, I I think ultimately, I really enjoy working like in my company as opposed to working on raising money for my company. Yeah. And I I love that you walked through the pros and cons because I don't think it's just black or white. I think there's so often where people are like pro-raising and nothing else or bootstrap all day. And I think, again, it doesn't matter as long as it aligns with your vision of impact and how you want to scale. Like That's why I love, again, the juxtaposition between you and Betsy Four is that you both have created so much impact, different paths that worked. And both pros and cons to each side because Fawn Weaver, founder of Uncle Nearest that we've had on too, she decided not to raise that capital because she said, like you said, like an egg timer, you're three. If you're not at the expectations they have, you might get ousted. And if you're, if you love what you do and you want to stay in it for a while, because there's some founders like, I want to exit this thing. If that's the goal, then, and you want to do it in a few years, go that route. That's perfect for you. But there's others like, I want to keep doing this. And so that might not be good. So I'm so happy you walked through that for us. And one of my favorite questions to ask is around, and founders always have, they're like, wow, which one? Is around what you feel is the biggest mistake you've made in your journey of over a decade. So I know there's lots, but that has turned out to be- So many. You're like, (laughs) well, which one? But has turned out to be one of the best lessons for you as a leader. I think I'm still learning this lesson, but I think that I really have, like I just mentioned when, when the conversation about investing, like I've been going it alone for a long time in terms of running this company and being like a sole leader and decision maker. Um, and I, I think the biggest mistake I made is not asking for help earlier on. Like we live, I was operating like I had something to prove, you know, and maybe I, I'm ambitious, I'm driven, but I didn't have to. I could still be those things and, and have help. And I think right now we especially are in a climate of women supporting women so much, which is so awesome. And I'm definitely leaning into it so much more, especially in LA, 
it's like a fresh start for me after 20 years in New York and being part of groups and networks of, of other female founders, talking to people like you, Alex, like it's so, it feels so good, you know, to feel like you have a real network and community. And I think for so long, I, I didn't because I just had something to prove that I could do this by myself, that I could make it. And, and that's been, it's been a struggle. So I think if, if that's probably one of my, my larger regrets, but it's never too late. And I, again, we are in a great climate now where, where it really does feel like there's so much support from women, so much capital going into women-founded businesses by other women, mentorship. So that, that's going to be, that's on my list of to-dos is to just keep leaning into that network of very successful, cool, smart, intelligent women that are out there that love business and they love talking about business and they want to see businesses like mine succeed. So that's that's probably one of my biggest mistakes. I think that you can see it's been kind of a long, slow road. It's And I'm really proud of what I've built, but I do wonder about the timing of things. Like, what if I had leaned into asking for help earlier? What if I'd done X, Y, or Z? Those are the sort of things that sort of uh, keep me up at night wondering, like, where, 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 what are the other roads not taken based on sort of my own just want of proving something. And I don't even know what at this point, whatever, whatever I'm trying to prove. Right. And I'm happy you shared that because I mean, just literally yesterday I was talking about this in therapy where, you know, even when you have a, a pretty expansive network, which I'm, I'm grateful I do, I still have been socialized based on my own experiences and, you know, as a woman, a woman of color and what was modeled to me because of the tools of, of the yes. people around me, what they had, feeling like I'm a burden when I ask. And it's so crazy that like when I finally reach out to people, they're like most of the time really excited. And but for some reason, they're, it's still scary for me. And I've been doing this for so long. So I'm so happy you shared that because, you know, I don't, I, I'm slowly undoing it, but it's, I know it's going to take a lot of time. So I, I definitely empathize yeah. with you on I that. I feel like exactly not, not modeled to me. I think, you know, as a daughter of immigrants, my parents moved from Korea in 1969. It was sort of before the next big wave of immigrants that came from Korea that came and opened up, you know, green grocers and dry cleaners and things like that. My dad was working for the Bank of Korea and he got an opportunity with, with the World Bank. And we, were, we lived in a mostly white neighborhood and I went to mostly white school and my parents did not have a big network of other Koreans or friends or community. So in a sense, I think that was what was modeled to me too. My dad worked really hard and he had to be a certain person, you know, in the workplace. And I think that's sort of the example that I saw growing up and that I'm also following too, which is like be this person that is strong, successful, and driven. But you know what? It is okay to ask for help. And I'm, so I'm unlearning some of that as well. Awesome. We're, do, we're doing it together. <laughs> and my, my final question to you is one of our models that get shit done is fuck 4%. We say that because women own nearly half of businesses in the US, but we generate about 4% of total revenues. And that's why we're here doing what we do to share that collective knowledge. And I guess for, for me, I would love to know, and for everyone listening, what are you doing now in your business to grow the revenues to the next level? Yeah. Now that I finally got out of New York and launched in a new market and I can see what's possible. I sort of feel like sky's the limit. I've got some really big goals again. I don't want to, I'm really, we're celebrating our 10 year anniversary this year, but I'm so not about to rest on our laurels. It's, um, it's going to be about expanding to more households. So going up and down the two coasts, right? From our New York hub and our LA hub, we now with packaging technology being what it is and with last mile and logistics, we can go a lot further and keep the food in, still in its pristine condition and super fresh and super nutrient dense. So we'll be expanding to all of California later this year and hopefully neighboring states like Arizona as well. And then along the East Coast, we're, we've got our sites on Boston, Philadelphia, DC. So getting Providence expanded along those coasts. The meal delivery market is, it's, 
in a boom state and it doesn't appear to be going anywhere but up. You know, I think the market is is valued at around 3.75 billion right now in the United States and then expected to reach like up to 12 billion in, in the next five years. So it's a huge market. There's huge opportunity. And I definitely plan on generating more of that revenue. So it's not 4% anymore. I love that. And based on your expansion goals, how can we and the folks listening support you? Well, I always want people to try us. That's because to me, that sells, it sells itself after that point. Try the food. So we have a code, get shit done, which will be $40 off your order. So that's for daily essentials is our weekly menu in LA or New York, or we have our national product, the feel good fix. So that ships anywhere in the US except for Alaska and Hawaii. And then of course, like and follow us at all the usual places. We're on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Um, Our handle is at Providence Meals. Thank you so much for listening to Get Shit Done. We hope you got the traction tips you need to grow your company on your own terms. If you want to learn more traction tips like these from Badass Women Entrepreneurs Weekly, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, queen, show us some love by rating and reviewing this podcast. This really helps us reach and serve more women like you in slaying their way to traction. And if you're looking for more support on your scaling journey, head on over to shegetsshitdone.com slash join, where you'll become a part of the movement of women entrepreneurs giving 4% the middle finger. Until next time, queen, I'm Alex Batdorf reminding you, you got this. Now go out there and get shit done.